everyone, and welcome back to the Green and Gold Rugby Show for another week. We're the show that's getting you over the game line on the hottest topics of Australian rugby, whether you're listening to us via the Eon Sports Radio uh, feed or directly through our podcast. We're thrilled to have you. I'm Reg Roberts, and joining me as per usual are Matt Rowley. How are you, Matt? Good, mate. Excellent. Hugh Cavill, how are you, Hugh? I'm good, Reg. Ready to get stuck in. Good stuff. We've got a, a special guest on the show, but before we get to him, it has has been a tough week, guys, and I guess we always try to lighten the mood before we delve into it, but I, I need to ask you both a question. I just want to know, what's your happy rugby place? When times are tough in rugby, where do you go to? What memories do you go back to to bring you back to a happy place? And, and there's a caveat here. Neither of us are, are allowed to bring up our respective Super Rugby titles. So, um, Matt, have you got uh, a fond memory you rely on? Oh, mate. Oh, geez. No, no Super Rugby title. Actually, that most recent win... At I'm trying to which year was that now um, with that Bledisloe Cup, so it would have been our last Bledisloe Cup win in um, in Sydney. Um, so it always feels it actually wasn't that long. Well, ago. It was the World, was that the World Cup year, 2015. Yeah, 2015. Yeah, I was there, mate. <laughs> Seems I was, like it does feel like a long time ago, doesn't it? Yeah, I was there. I was watching it, and I was in a very very happy place as we smashed the Kiwis that night. Very nice, Mr. Cavill. How about you, sir? There's, there's, there's not many Wallaby ones. I, I, and I, I can't talk about the, the Waratahs title win, but I'll go back to um, Waratahs against the British Lions. That could be mine. We lost that game, but Tom Carter scored two tries and we yeah. beat the hell out of them. <laughs> um, and so I still, it's still a happy place, and that was a good fun night in Paddington um, with some friends. So that's my happy place. Oh, good stuff. Look, I'm a, a game, and I love the fact how none of us were allowed to... Um, choose or mention the Super Rugby titles, but we've all managed to mention it because I won't mention the 2011 Super Rugby title, but I pulled out my old DVD highlights of the 2010 Red season, and that was the season that we all sort of, Ewan's first season, and they they, they came from nowhere. I think they finished fifth, and they, gee, they played some great rugby that year. It was just sensational. Uh, really sort of turned things in Queensland on its ear. Um, so I, I cling to that knowing where it's all come to uh, from there, unfortunately. Um, but uh, we are going to get the nuts and bolts of it. It's, it's been a massive week, and we, we've got five burning questions. Helping us to get through the first couple of those questions is um, a, a very special guest, someone we've had on the show before, and it's, it's former Wallaby Brendan Cannon. Cano, thanks for joining us, mate. Oh, Rugby Reds, mate, fantastic to be back in the honour of three rugby uh, stores such <laughs> as yourselves. <laughs> It's uh, it must be a tough time, can I? I forgot the fact that you were um, the Western Forces' first ever signing, correct? Uh, that, that, that is correct, um, and so obviously it is a pretty uh, it's a pretty passionate time for all of us that have been there and have contributed to the growth of rugby in Western Australia, and it's um, it's a very sensitive topic for a number of us, and I am really pleased uh, as a former player and a former foundation player that the Western Force, if they are to go down, which the media are speculating and have been very much so, in, in what is proclaimed by the AU two days ago to be a two-horse race, the media is only focusing on the Western Force, but I am extremely proud to see that if they are to go down, they're going down fighting and serving the writ on the ARU. Uh, to prolong, uh, I suppose, the process or to give themselves a better chance to present a justifiable case for um, to remain uh, in, in play. Reserved. So, so can our first question is effectively about that, the ARU. But everyone's I guess, unanimous in the, in the thought process that they've handled this really poorly. How could they have handled it better? <laughs> 
Well, it, it's it's just been the whole thing has been a fiasco. Uh, Super Rugby is the premier competition of of, of Sandra. I mean, we all talk about the Rugby Championship, but Super Rugby is what really generates the interest amongst the fan base. And for this to happen in the first month of the competition is an outright disgrace. The fact that, that, that the unions involved in it have allowed it to happen, New Zealand are sitting back laughing because it doesn't affect them. Australian rugby in, a, in such a competitive market have destroyed themselves and we are more than on our knees. We are face down in the gutter with rugby as a sport. Um, the, the fact that they've allowed it to take place at the time that they've had, they have, the way in which the AU have handled it from a board and a CEO or senior management perspective has just been appalling. The silence, the deafening silence has allowed all the conspiracy theorists out there to run amok. Whenever we have needed leadership, whenever we have needed strength of a brand, whenever we ever, as a rugby nation, have needed to stand up, it has been in the last six weeks. And the leadership from the board and the ARU has not been there because the silence, for me, has been the most alarming component about it. That's a really interesting thing, Kano, and it's a message that I guess we've reiterated on the podcast for a little while, and it and it goes beyond just what's happened in this last six weeks. There's almost no visibility of the ARU for the last 12 months. So I don't know if it was all on the cards, they realised things were going downhill, but we've heard there's been no proactive talk, and, and even... I know it's the timing of the AGM, but even the the, the, the sending out by email of, a, of the annual report um, boasting about, you know, growth across the country and stuff like that on the day of all this coming out just smelt wrong to me. It just was not handled well from that, that, that strategic perspective. Well, it's ludicrous because all of us that are at the grassroots, all of us that go and watch football on the weekend, we know that, you know, the, the junior level of the game is, the game is reasonably strong. But the professional level of the game is the one that's floundering. And if ever Australian rugby could have produced such a poor year that they have, timing could not have been, I suppose, ironic for the sacking, for the potential sacking of an Australian franchise with the Australian teams almost en masse, excluding the Brumbies, performing so poorly across the board. The concern for me with the silence, guys, is the fact that you don't see an AFL when Andrew Dimitro was there or when... Um, uh, David Gallup was the CEO of, of Rugby League. The visibility, they were there when, when the tough questions had to be asked. They put themselves in front of the media. They allowed themselves to be under the spotlight. The lack of visibility from Bill Pulver and Cameron Klein uh, as the, the, the chairman of the board has been more alarming whenever there has been a time when rugby has needed its leaders to embrace us as a code to really re-engage with the grassroots and the stakeholders. They've allowed this unrest, this, this almost burning of the effigy of the ARU to take place because they haven't had, I suppose, the gumption to stand up before us as, as supporters of rugby in this country and, and be transparent about what's been going on. The silence has just been appalling. So, Kano, it's Matt here, mate. Look, so do you reckon, was it, did the answer always need to be, we're going to stick up for five teams? Or do you reckon that if their answer was, okay, guys, we've done the numbers or whatever else, we, we know it needs to be four, that they should have just come out and just said that? I mean, it, I mean, are you saying that, look, if they just stood up and been straightforward and said, I don't know, how long ago was it, a month ago, we're going into this thing, this is what we're putting forward, is that what you reckon they should have done? Well, I think they've been in a really difficult position where we've obviously lost the bargaining power at the table because, we, you know, we, we have been such a huge contributor to World Rugby. We've won two World Cups, have been in a final for a, a third, and, and yet of the three Sanzar partners, we appear to be the weakest because we've been the one that's been the most silent in relation to what's been happening here. 
I don't understand how this hasn't been the opportunity for, for us to redefine our brand and to stand up mm. and to really be quite strong and vocal about rugby. I mean, we, we compete in the most competitive sporting landscape of the three Sanzar partners. Why would we not be making noise? But when you've got former rugby league players like Matty Johns and Mark Guy commenting on, on the loss of what Super Rugby is, and then no one comes out to counter-argue against it, no one's out there promoting the goodness of our game, the direction of our game, or the future of Australian rugby within the Sanzar um, partnership. That is so alarming for us, I think, as followers of rugby, that if ever there's been a time when we've needed leadership, it's been in the last sort of two months, but when it, but it's, it's been completely absent. And the way in which the whole process has been handled, you can't have any faith in that board or, this, or the current senior management of the ARU to know that what they're doing is right because they haven't had the decency to treat us with respect as a rugby community. And that's the thing that concerns me the most. Cano, um, it's, it's Hugh here. It's it's a tough one, and I think what Matt was getting at was, I mean, do you think there was a good way? I mean, and I think I'm trying to get at what you're saying here is, is there a good way that they could have cut a team? And is that, you know, as you say, sort of treating us like adults a bit more and, 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 and planting the seeds? Because you look at the economic figures that they've put out in the last two days, and it's, it's a pretty dire picture, but they surely knew this months ago. I mean, do you think they had to play a bit more of a long game if this was an option that was on the table and, and putting it out there a bit more and, and telling us that it was an option? And, and that probably is a very valid position, um, Hugh, but why do it in the midst of the Super Rugby competition? You know, between the final being played last year and the opening game being played this year, there's a number of months that have transpired. The fact that they've allowed it to drag on, knowing that this was inevitable knowing that this was was something that had to happen. Um, then there was there was minimal noise about it in the off-season, and then all of a sudden, in the midst of the competition, it's all that everyone's been focusing about. And I really feel for the players. I really feel for the players within the playing groups that are the ones in the spotlight, particularly the Western Force ones. I mean, the, the Rebels guys appear to be in a position of comfort, and I, that's a whole different scenario as to why they're not being spoken about. Is it the fact that because they're privately owned and they've got a very wealthy ownership group or ownership base, that the AU doesn't want to proposition the fact that they could be the one that gets resolved because the litigation component, they don't have the bank funds to, to balance against that? Or is it easy for them to discard someone who is effectively under their management? But the ironic component has been that the Western Force in the last 48 hours have come out and served a, a writ um, or put an injunction on the AU to stop the process from proceeding at its current direction and allow more time to take place. So it, it's it's a really disappointing position for all of us to even be talking about. Um, what I don't understand is that when the Western Force was given the, the fourth franchise opportunity, Melbourne was a consideration at that point. So all the money that's gone into the Western Force, besides what the AU have invested into it, the Western Australian government's invested nearly $140 million dollars they redeveloped NIB Stadium after they realised that Subiaco wasn't a suitable rugby venue, but Subiaco for the opening year, you know, in that opening game, we had nearly in excess of 40,000 people at it. But the support for rugby in Western Australia, I, I can be honest, is very, very strong. You know, pardon the Star Wars analogy, but the force is strong in the West. It really is. And the way in which the AU have treated with the West with contempt with this whole process um, it is, is a slap in the face for every rugby follower that's not only travelled across the Nullarbor to play rugby and contributed to rugby in Western Australia, 
but anyone in Western Australia that supported the Western Force that has gone to a rugby test match in Western Australia. If if it happens, the way in which the media is speculating, and the media sometimes get it wrong, but very seldom that they do, if it does happen that the Western Force don't, uh, don't participate in the competition after this year, don't bother taking a rugby test to Western Australia for a very, very long time because they will turn their back in droves on what has been a fantastic opportunity for rugby to grow the game nationally. Yeah, all right, Kenna, let's get into that. And that's our second question, effectively, is the impact of cutting a team in Australian rugby. Have you been in contact with the, you know, your mates back over the, the force, whether they be players, administrators, grassroots supporters? What's, what is going to be the impact, if it is the force that gets cut? What's going to be the impact on, on the code over there? Oh, hugely damaging, hugely damaging. A, a, a lot of disillusioned people because... Everyone has, has supported the Western Force from you know, its inception. There was nearly you know, five to 10,000 people on Suviaco Oval uh, you know, in, in the, I suppose, the big phase for the Western Force to be the successful team. You know, all of us that were there from the foundation years, um, whilst the success hasn't been there on the field, there has been enormous inroads made at grassroots level and off the field within the state of Western Australia. And that only has to... I suppose, bear testament to, to the see the local talent that's coming through the current Western Force squad. You know, I, I have nothing personally against the Melbourne Rebels franchise. I think it's, it was an opportunity that Australian rugby had to take at the time, but it's, it's an opportunity that's a very challenging one because you exist in, or are trying to exist in, one of the most hostile sporting um, territories in Australia. You know, News Limited have supported the Melbourne Storm for a number of years and it's been running at a loss considering the success that they've had. Why do we allow people to invest money and, and to potentially waste good money in a state where you know you really aren't going to make inroads? But in Western Australia where you've had that length of time, the success, the succession plan of players coming through, the, the feeling that you can see at the moment in terms of what they're about to lose is evident enough to me that rugby's been a huge success in the West. It really has. Yeah, it's a, it's a challenging one, isn't it, Can I mean, there, there's been... There was pre, and I, this is what I don't understand. And you, you've got to make the assumption that this has been on the cards for a little while. That, that, that at least there's been thought process about this. And, and Matt and I, you've had your sort of conspiracy theories as when the ARU took over, that was part of their sort of long play in terms of of getting um, on top of this situation. Well, at least the removal of the force. But you know, giving them a let us like up in what 2019 supporting the government's investment into the, the upgrades of, of the stadium uh, it, it's almost duplicitous in, in terms of you know what the, the ARU have committed to the Perth locals and then um, if you believe it that the decisions we made to move I, I just I can't see rugby ever getting another sort of le- that level of foothold back over in the west no I, I, I can't either Reg I really can't and this has apparently been on the cards for over a month now, um, you know, with the revised format. Um, my inside mail at, at Fox was that this was, this was always on the cards. What's being now touted was always going to happen uh, in the revised 15 mm. team model. Um, you know, sadly, the Western Force, in some ways, because of the time zone they're in, was an opportunity to slip another game in from a viewership perspective. But the numbers or the, or the, the, the viewership component of it, hasn't really been there. And I understand, you know, Fox, you know, Fox owned rugby in, in professional rugby in Australia. Without, you know, Rupert Murdoch's generous support of rugby, the, the game wouldn't have gone professional at the time that it did. 
And and they as businessmen and, and as a business have to look at what the ramifications are, where they get their best return. But the fundamental of it all in some ways is you're dealing with people's lives. This is a decision that we are now we are now officially in very uncharted waters for Australian rugby. And it's a hugely sensitive topic, it's a hugely emotionally charged topic. And for all of us that have contributed to the Western Force, and I'm sure everyone vice versa would be the same that have been with the Melbourne Rebels. You cannot believe the emotion that you feel knowing that potentially all the effort that everyone has put in is going to be wiped off the floor and it's all amounted for nothing. And that, and that to me, doesn't make any sense. It really doesn't. And, you know, the lawyers will fight it out with the Western Force having served that injunction on the AU, which I'm really proud of them for doing that because, you know, the Western Force have shown that things do happen a little bit differently in the West. There's been some tumultuous times over there with the firepower fiasco. But what they've done in the current management and leadership team that they've got there with this own the force to be the only listed, potentially only listed sporting entity in Australia shows great vision and shows great courage. And it probably also shows that they knew something was pending and that they needed to take control of their own destiny because they couldn't rely on others. And they've always copped a bit of a raw deal over there. And, if you've lived in Western Australia or if you've spent enough time over there, they really do have a very sensitive view um, to how the East Coast view the West. And this only will reinforce the fact that the East doesn't support the West if this decision follows through. Mate, just um, just a quick question. If you, if you can divorce, I know it's, there's a lot of emotion um, pent up in there when you've you know literally spilt blood for um, the club. Uh, it's hard to divorce it. But if, if, if you ignore for a minute which club would need to go, how do you feel about the argument uh, that, you know, pulling it back to four teams gives the Australian yeah. player base a better chance to succeed within Super Rugby? You know, we've had a bunch of guys gone overseas, you know, whatever, we've got 30-plus international-level players now, um, at least um, spread around the globe. Uh, and that we just can't support that across five teams at the, and achieve. Um, do you do you go with that? Do you think bringing it down to four teams will give us a better crack or not? I, I think that's a really valid position to take. I think we have spread our talent too thin, and and it's really caused us to, to regress as a rugby nation when you look at the way in which our current super rugby teams are performing um, across the board. Um you know, we were, when you look back to the formula that we had when we were a very strong rugby nation, when the Wallabies were on top of the world, you know, Queensland, New South Wales and the Brumbies were, were so competitive. And then we introduced the Western Force and there was a minor dilution which benefited from the unrest, the civil unrest that was happening in Queensland rugby at that time. Um, and, and then that was always going to take a little bit of an absorption time for that to balance itself and sort of, you know, work itself out into a perfect position. Mm. And then within a couple of years, the excitement, the euphoria of what the Western Force had created gave the opportunity for the Melbourne Rebels to come in. And that diluted even further. So we, by trying to be, uh, I suppose, entrepreneurial, we've really eaten our own and we've, we've, we've really caused it to be a huge dilution of what the Australian talent has been. And don't underestimate also that the game globally is, has become such a big opportunity for any talented rugby player that the Australian rugby system has always been so academy orientated that if you're not in the academy going through the junior teams, you very rarely do you find a Steve Merrick that comes from the clouds to get into a super rugby mm. team. You really don't. 
And so those guys go overseas. And there's an enormous amount of Australian talent that's playing overseas that probably are better than half the Super Rugby players running around. But the academy system never never identified them or never gave them an opportunity. So I do agree with the fact that four teams was probably our, our saturation level. Five teams has really weakened us across the board. And you only have to look at the way in which the, the performances have gone since those five teams have been introduced. It's, it's been very problematic for the Australian rugby um, that our performances as, as a five-team entity have been so poor. Uh, look, Brendan, we're going to let you go. Really appreciate your time on this, and it's great to get that insight, um, particularly for someone who spent so much time in the West. And I got, you know, where we, no matter what you feel about the decision, anyone, I think we can all feel for the organisation and the fans and the players in particular. Seeing Matt Hodgson talk after the match, it, it, it sort of it's heartbreaking stuff, and it's it's not the association with the game that anyone wants. So it's. Uh, it's a really hard time for those, and we, we, you know, we send our best and, and uh, hope it can all be resolved soon, but it's, it sounds like it's going to be drawn out. But, Kano, thanks for your time, mate, and your input on this one. Not a problem, boys. All the best. And let's hope that things can get better because we seriously don't want things to get any worse than where they've been yeah. heading of late. That's for sure. Thanks, yeah, Kano. Exactly. Thank you, Thanks, boys. mate. We'll speak to you again, mate. Cheers. Bye-bye. Yeah, so thanks to, to Brendan Cannon there for joining us. Yeah, I guess, Hugh, Matt, you know, we listened to him. I'd be interested to see what your own thoughts are on, on the impact of cutting a team there, regardless of who it is. Hugh, it's got a few different potential you know, impacts from it, doesn't it? It does, and I think Brendan Cannon's, in, in, in his responses to our questions, they summed it up pretty well. I think there's no doubt that everyone, um, you know, including the three of us, all feel horribly for whichever, for players and fans of both teams, and and... Um, Rebels and Force, and uh, look, I don't know who's likely to go. Um, it looks like the Force are probably the ones that are um, in a little bit more trouble. But re- regardless of you know that the, the human side of it, and, and the players, and the coaches, and the fans, especially the guys that listen to our podcast, and um, the, the, our guys over, over in Perth who we who we love, it's it's just sucks. It's a shitty situation, and there's no other way of of, of putting it. And and by no means do when we, when we speak about this and, and try and look at it from a more analytical perspective and um, you know you can't forget that that these are you know um, t- uh, for a lot of fans they're going to lose their team and that's something that I've never had to well no I'm a North Sydney Bears fan so I have a little bit of an idea but it's um, it, it's a horrible situation for them so so that's something that clearly Brendan Cannon was grappling with because if I sort of transition to my next point. I think I was going back and forth over this in the last two weeks. I can see both sides of keeping the five teams and cutting back, but you look at the economic numbers, Matt, and you know I think you're going to touch on them. But the ARU's annual report that they've released, and the thing that is amazing to see is the huge increase in TV broadcast revenue, A, and then B, the fact that that entire increase was basically sunk into Super Rugby and all of these super rugby teams, and you just can't see how that's sustainable. They're eating up so much money every year, and they're not producing results on the field. So as a, as a um, investment from the AIU, as an investment from Australian rugby, we're putting in the bulk of our money into this product. It's not delivering anything for us. So something needed to change. And I think there's a few options on the table, but I can't 
really fault the one that the ARU came up with. I could fault the way they got to it, and I certainly agree with a lot of Brendan Cannon's complaints, but in, in looking at the actual decision in and of itself, fortunately, I think that it's probably the, the only option the ARU really had. Yeah, and I think they said it themselves. I mean, isn't that what was reported, that, that Pulver and Klein both said that they knew in 2011 that five teams wasn't sustainable after or a year into the Rebels? I guess they both started, or Pulver started 2013. Maybe it was must have been around that time frame. But they knew early. I don't get how they then expanded the competition further and didn't consider it then. But that's the frustrating element from my perspective. I, I really worry about our footprint in the West. You know, if it was me, I'd be cutting the Rebels because I think, you know, we can... We can <laughs> there's a, fa- a strong fan base there, but in effect, it'll just... It, it won't touch the surface there, and I reckon you could go back there in five years and start it all again, whereas we cut the force. I don't think we'll get back to the to, to Perth for some time later. I'll get you have a chat soon, Matt, but, you know, it was interesting to see Rupert come out, and Hugh, you and I had a chat about this. You can understand Rupert being against cutting a team because they're going to lose member fees and, and I guess, ostensibly less players, um, uh, member players. But the players are going to benefit. The, the remaining players, obviously, there's going to be 30, 35 players cut, but I assume they'll go overseas and get money over there and um, some might go into the sevens program. Who knows? But the remaining Super Rugby players are going to get a bigger piece of the pie. So they'll feel bad for the players, but, you know, longer term, they might get a bit more out of it. Look, I, I think it really does come down to the numbers, actually, when you look at it. If, um, you know, if, if Pulver and the board, which is really their job, look at it from the point of view of how does this business run, and, the, you know, they escaped by the skin of their teeth um, mm. with this mm. new deal, and, you know, they were you know, they were heading into losses, and God knows what was going to happen after that. So they've escaped death with the new TV deal, but as we'll talk about in a minute, um, you know, they're pretty much eating up all the cash again. Um, so this whole thing about there was a surplus, the problem was there wasn't enough surplus because they know in 2019 they're going to miss a bunch of cash again. Um, so that the whole thing doesn't go pop again, they know they've got to be sticking something like 10 million bucks in the bank and per year, and they only stuck three. So, And if you look at it, if you do the numbers, the extra super team costs probably around about seven or eight million bucks. So you know, the, the numbers just add up too neatly not to do this. Um, to your, but so that's from a pure balance sheet point of view. Um, you know, from the other side of the equation, which is all the effort and time and investment from whether it's the WA government or whether it's from players and people who've built up these teams and everything else out west. Um, to you know, like you say, I think that was a really good summary. I mean, you know, to be losing that. Um, the only thing is that if you say now to about the AOU, well, okay, so therefore go have a look at the rebels. Well. If this is a you know if this is a money saving or money finding expedition, you know if you then I don't know what you have to pay out to this guy to get that sorted out, um, you know another five six million bucks or something like that. Um, yeah, yeah. Then you know you're going backwards at a, at a faster rate of knots. You might well not do it. So yeah, they're in a they're in a real Hobson's choice. Um, but I think that it's because of that choice that you you know that's why we haven't heard any pushback on why it needs to be an Australian team. Right, because again, this is like one of these funny things where okay, we need to go down to from Super 18 to Super 15. Um, well, Japan can stay, but that, but you know, it needs to be an Aussie rugby team that needs to go. Um, that was mm. the thing that no one even raised an eyebrow um, about that, mm. uh, and re-rolled over fairly quickly. And that's only because I think someone did the sums, you know, at least a year ago, and realised that you know actually that's a blessing in disguise for us. 
Yeah, I'd be interested in the World Rugby are involved in that decision at all. They obviously want uh, the World Cup uh, to be well supported in Japan and, and losing a Super Rugby team out of this competition would do the sport a little bit of harm over there. Um, the, the, the other interesting thing with this is as we approach 2020, which is when I think the broadcast deal is up, um, New Zealand all of a sudden are the dominant partner. Now, some will say they have been already, but in the... When it gets to 2020, they're the only team, or well, only country with five teams. South Africa down to four, Australia down to four, and obviously Argentina and Japan one each. So all of a sudden, they, they are the, the main party in this, and, and, and we'll be looking for a, a bigger piece of the pie as well. So uh, I hope the AU are thinking strategically a couple of years ahead of themselves as well. Mm. Oh, yeah, look. Given the evidence of the last five years, Reg, what do you reckon? <laughs> Good luck, um, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a fat chance. Um, it's interesting... Um, to come out of a couple of things, Reg, is um, one thing that I think we've glossed over as Aussie rugby fans looking at our situation is what the hell is happening in South Africa? Yeah, I, mean, I was going to ask that question. Exactly, yeah. They've, they've, you know, people, and, and I think Brendan and Canada even sort of touched on it, think that the AAU, well, we were a bit of a pushover. We obviously didn't negotiate hard enough, and as, as a result, we've lost a team. And yet South Africa have lost two. And... Yep. I, I don't know what their economic situation is, A, but B, their on-field situation is a lot better than what ours is um, in the sense that, you know, they just beat a New Zealand team. The Stormers beat the Chiefs this week, and certainly they none no Australian teams managed to do that this year. Um, and they look to have, you know, again, a, pretty, a couple of live chances going, you know, in the Sharks that look pretty good and um, in the Lions. Um, and the Bulls look okay as well, but... Why I don't understand why they've had to cut back two teams to to come back in line, and obviously, um, you know the concessions that were made to them at the last round when we went to this Super 18 and giving them an extra team and giving them two pools of their own and two four guaranteed final spots and that sort of thing was was a bridge too far. But it seems like this is a massive overcorrection in, in that process. Yeah, yeah, and I wonder where that stands and when when those decisions will be made too, because that will impact. Things back here as well. Yeah, well, the kings. And, and, and the kings have been a the kings have been a complete disaster though from the beginning. Suppose, they've, been, yeah. they've been bust since since they began. So I don't think anyone would be warning them. Yeah, that's true. And and also, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about a trans Tasman competition, and it's always floated when these things come up as as a potential option for Australian rugby. But once again, it was just shown again this week that New Zealand have absolutely no appetite for it. Absolutely none. And we, we, you know, Cameron Klein admitted as much that they floated it to, to Steve Chu and the NZIU, but they once again slapped it down. They're just, I think people overestimate how much the Kiwis care about us in, uh, in New Zealand, and they'd much rather play South Africa. Um, and, and they really value the involvement of, of the South African teams in Super Rugby. And, and they, don't, they don't seem to have any appetite at all to, to have a competition with us. Oh, and I think more broadly, I don't think there's a lot of respect there for the Australian rugby broadly at the moment in terms of both on-field and off-field. So I think that was a big part of that that sort of slap down as well. But it'd be interesting because do you really think New Zealand would be flying, you know, literally over Australia to, for every away game? Um, it's a long way to go to have a competition. Um, I, yeah, I think it'd be... That's an interesting staring down. I think we've just lost the stare down. <laughs> I think we lost the stare down when I, I started. I, I, well, that, that, that's my belief too, man. I, but I think it was, a, again, it's that leadership we're looking for. Yeah. Look, we move on to the next question, guys, and it's it's um, the AU annual report was just released today or the last couple of days. Um, and we just want to look at the biggest takeaway that. There's obviously a lot of figures around the game and participation figures, but there's 
some pretty heavy financial factors there as well. So, Matt, why don't you kick us off? What's your what's your big takeaway from the uh, the annual report? Well, like I, as I said in the chat before this to you guys, um, to my barely trained eye, um, it just looked like we spruced uh, forty million bucks in this last year. Um, so, you know, 2015 was a little bit weird because, you know, there's a chunk of money in the revenue there that comes from the World Rugby because um, of the World Cup. Uh, so we get like, you know, 20, well, 19 million bucks out of them. Um, and that's look, that looks to, and it doesn't quite, um, so it doesn't quite cover what we would have made otherwise from those inbound tests. Um, but that's, you know, that, that's the idea. But look, if, if, if I go to, um, if you just look at the headline revenue, so headline revenue in 2015, we got 84, 84 million bucks in the door. In 2016, we got 128 million bucks in the door. Um, but in the end of the day, um, as you guys have as, as been published, there's only a three million dollar uh, uh, surp- surplus. Surplus. Um, yeah, yeah, versus the the previous year, um, which was what was it? We missed, right? Um, so we missed yep, by like we missed by like five. Um, so maybe there's like an eight million buck swing there, um, you know, at, at the most. So look, in, in, in my rounding, then, and you say, well, hang on, where did all the money go? Well, there's a little bit more that's gone into community rugby. Um, so it's up to 4.2 from 2.3. So there's about two million bucks in there. I think Hugh, you found another maybe a couple of million bucks from somewhere that's gone into something that. Yeah, there's more. There's more money allocated to the member unions. So the New South Wales Rugby Union, the QRU, and that sort of thing are getting an extra. I think let's have a look. Sorry, I'll get the exact figure. Um, the grants were given out to. Oh, I think they got an extra increase of across the board about three or four million dollars. Yeah, but at the end of the day, I mean, where this money has gone is um, basically Super Rugby funding has gone from nineteen million bucks to thirty-three million bucks. And Super Rugby team costs from four million bucks to eight million bucks. Um, so you know that's where we're looking at. So that's where the some so around about 15, 16 million bucks um, has been swallowed up. Um, actually, and then in match day operations, there's an extra five million bucks um, that's gone in there. But I guess that's because we had the inbound test that might account for some of that. Um, yeah. And and so yeah, so that's kind of where it's blown out. Actually, they've managed to trim some money off corporate um, by the looks of things. So, yeah, it's basically just super rugby, which I think we've been mooting about on this podcast for quite a while, has just kind of gone out of control, um, you know, with the five teams. And it quite clearly, it's, you know, it's it's keeping up with, if not sort of, you know, pro- we'll probably overtake the increase that you've got in that broadcasting over the next few years. Yeah, yeah, I think there's also four million of that to the force as well as part of that payment as well. So that's I don't know whether to include in that super rugby fees, but uh, some big biggies there. What about you, Hugh? What are your takeaways on this one? Well, firstly, I encourage everyone, every one of our listeners. Um, uh, I think um, there's we're up to what two hundred or three hundred thousand now, guys. So mm. you know, all, all get out there. Um, but Get out there and read the annual, annual report. And by read, I don't mean the glossy first 50 pages, mm. which is just generally PR rubbish. Flick to the income statements at the back, and that's all you need to know. That's where the actual meat and potatoes of this thing is. And it's really interesting reading. Um, so my takeaway and is just the amount of money that we get through this new broadcast deal 
It's staggering, huge, isn't it? Yeah. Because yeah. The, the, comparing 2016 to 2015, as Matt says, is a little bit fraught because of last year, of 2015 being a, um, a real, a, an outlier year, a World Cup year. So you've got to go back a year before. So in 2014, they were getting $26 million a year through broadcasting revenue. So that's a combination of the Super Rugby and the, um, into their deal with Fox, um, the deal with Channel 10, the, all of the, all of their relevant deals. Um, and that gone, that 26 figure in 2014 dropped to 18 in 2015 because they had less games, obviously less tests. Um, but in 2016, it's risen to $61 million. So that's almost what's well, actually more than double what we had. So it's an increase of about $35 million. And so they've got $35 million extra coming in the door um, for the exact same product on the field. It's, it's a staggering increase. And the fact now that they've got a guarantee from the broadcasters that even despite losing a team, they're going to keep the same share of revenue. It just shows you that if they can actually manage to get all their ducks in a row and even just quieten the super teams to be not so much of a financial basket case and just basically a regular basket case or just keep their keep vaguely afloat of their own, you know, on their own two feet. Um the benefits to flow to our game could be huge. If we can just get an extra five million of that dollar, you know, five million of that thirty-five, and put into community rugby, I mean, mm. um, consider what you could do with that. I mean, it's it's phenomenal, and and that stuff at the grassroots, that's that would represent a doubling of what they're putting in now, and. Yeah, that's the stuff that that um, I know. Bill Porver and Cameron Klein have basically said that any any gains they get out of this um, this Super Rugby team um, being obviously reduced to four will go into community rugby. And look, that's a bit of a vague promise, but if they can come out with there, there's such this that uh, it's really serious money coming in, even though on the field and people might say it's all doom and gloom, it just shows you that if if, if a few things go right for us in the next year or two, um, that that you know, with that sort of money coming in, things can turn around pretty quickly, and it makes makes the uh, gives us an ability to do a lot of things that we haven't been able to do so far. Yeah, I think you're bang on. That's that's yeah, you, you captured it. It's, it's the positive out of all this is what it might mean for the game, and I guess you, you know the important thing is to off offset that with what's going to happen in one of these regions. But it isn't enticing. If, if Super Rugby, if the new model works, more local derbies, um, more understanding of the competition, more crowds for those state unions, which will hopefully upswing them, yeah, you're right. There is some potential um, potential positive flow-ons from there as well. Um, like the one- um, look, we got... Yeah, go on, Matt. Well, I just wanted to jump in very quickly, which is that um, in the report they do a scorecard where they yeah, it's give, yeah, where they kind of go through and they've set up these things where they can basically say how they've done out of a hundred, basically what percentage they can do out of a hundred, and on you know part and it's divided up into different parts. So you've got making rugby a game for all, and they've basically scored themselves as twenty two and a half percent out of twenty five percent on that one. Um, igniting Australians' passions for the game, they've managed to score themselves eighteen and a half percent out of twenty on that one, which. Um, look, I don't know if anyone else listening to this podcast feels like we do, but um, I don't think there's been a year yeah. that's been harder to support rugby in the last year, so I don't quite know how they got... To, well, I do know how they get to that one, but I, I, I think it's missing the mark. Um, uh, then they've got uh, creating excellence in how the game is run, 15 out of 25 on that one. Um, but then the final one, even they couldn't mark this one up, um, building sustainable su- success in professional rugby, which was 12 out of 30. 
So even mm. with a few self gimmies in some of those first few segments, I mean, they only get to 68 out of 100. So um, even out of the AAU's own sort of mark score, where they're kind of marking and setting their own marks and then marking against it, it's been a it was a pretty miserable year, to be honest. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. Um, look, uh, let's move on and, and let's talk a little bit about on-field um, and would love to talk positively, but the question you guys have come up with here is uh, question four, have the wheels fallen off the reds? Who, who's going to answer that one, guys? Who wants to, to jump in with that one? Hugh, did you want to <laughs> deal with the reds' poor performance or Matt? Who wanted to... I, well, I suppose I reject the premise of the question. Were the wheels ever on the reds? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's, that's a really legitimate aspect of that one. You know, when they start, what, the season one and six, you can can barely say the wheels were on at least too tight, maybe after that first game, but uh, they've been wobbling a fair bit since. It's, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's a bit a, of a... It's a shame, Reg, and uh, look, I'll, I'll, I'll start off, I suppose, is, is watching them against in that second half against the Brumbies, and look, the Brumbies were sensational in that second half, and, and one of the best halves of Australian rugby I've seen in a long time. Um, and you know, with a relatively anonymous sort of sort of team, they lost Carl Godwin too, and and they had um, you know Henry Spates always solid for them, and they had some good forwards there in Rory Arnold and Scotty Co. and and Scotty Fard. He's turning back the clock. He was in great form. But on the Reds, the thing that I, I'm amazed at is just that that forward pack with the sort of names they have in it. I mean, Rob Simmons and Kane Douglas took us to a World mm. Cup final. I mean, yep. <laughs> would you believe it now? I, I, I don't think so. I mean, Adam Korchik and Isaac Rotter would probably do a better job in there. Um, they just look like the bog standard sort of super strugglers. Mm. Um, Stephen Moore is is trying hard but not really doing much in that pack. And obviously they've lost James Slipper, but um, the props were, were well murdered at the scrum by the Brumpies. And, and unfortunately, George Smith and... That back row and Scotty Higgers are just just not seemingly not not getting the job done. And and look, I know Quade's suspended and Nick Frisby's having some troubles. And and um, you know, to me, it just looks like the Samu Karevi show at the moment, really. And and Carmichael Hunt's injured too. So it's 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 a sad situation. And, and injuries have made and suspensions have made it worse. But um, with all that experience there, you just would have thought that you wouldn't see the sort of um, the sort of blowout halves that we saw on 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 the weekend, and, and that's the shame of it. Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you why the yeah, one have fallen yeah, off there know. is because is, is is because of that pack. I mean, that was the one. You know, the, the mail is is that you know basically Styles is interested in the in the pack and not in, in the backs, and the backs don't even talk to the forwards. And and you know he'd been building up that pack for a couple of seasons now. Where actually remember just a year ago it was a pretty it was a bit of a scrummaging force and it was a laughing stock on the weekend, absolute laughing stock. So mm-hmm. and like you said, there's a there's a lot of talent in there. And like I say, George Smith week by week it starts to become more and more anonymous, which geez, I never thought I'd say. Um, so I think it's got some very worrying signs on it. Yeah, it does. And, you know, our second half performances have been terrible, just not scoring tries. I think it's three games now this season. We haven't scored a, a point in the second half or at least a, a try in the second half. And that's just, you know, we're barely hanging on in that first half. And then to to be hit like we were, albeit against a great Brumbies team, it was just dismal. So, yeah, gosh, we talked about in the previous section about the, you know, Queensland or well, the Super Rugby teams needing to, to lift their game and get the crowd through the gates and so on. I, 
I really worry about this weekend. So you've got the Reds at one and six and, and at, what, third last in the ladder, hosting the Kings. So South African teams don't pull too well at the best of times, let alone the Kings, who are equally poor on a, a Saturday afternoon on an Easter week weekend uh, at Suncorp Stadium. This could be one of the smallest crowds they've had for a long time, which is a real shame. But thankfully, after that, we've got the Waratahs to look at in two weeks' time. So we'll see how they, they go there. But um, it, it's, it's, not a, it's not a positive time for Queensland rugby. And I, and I was literally shocked. I looked at the table this week. I'd kind of been avoiding it and to see them at the bottom of the uh, third bottom on the conference and just in front of the Rebels, and I think uh, must be the Sunwolves. It's, it's horrendous. So, well, okay. um, well we I, can, yeah. we've seen those, the Kings can do some crazy-ass shit. So. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> That's gonna be Should we talk about that quickly? Yeah. The skills level this weekend in Super Rugby was phenomenal. <laughs> it was. It went off the charts. And that, that, that Kings force game, it went bonkers in the second half that was mad i still don't know how the force won that because every time i i look back at the tv the um the kings were scoring another absolutely crazy try um but the force managed to you know keep pegging him back and then even the waratahs half time i'm like oh my god this is like a absolute horror show and um well they should have been a lot lot closer so i don't know maybe maybe we're finally coming back into things in the second half of this season but, but yeah, yeah, perhaps. But the, the, the skill in that game, and Kafer said it in that the, the force game, that the Kings uh, have scored more tries, more counter-attack tries than anyone in the competition. And then they... Did you see the try that they... Crungy, the fly half, yeah. sort of passed it to himself around the back, flipped it through the fullback. That was freaky. Then another kick through, and then, you know, the Brumbies game, you had Duet Ruse with his flick pass, but even Rory Arnold's doing offloads. But then that bloody, what, what was it, the um, the Chief Stormers Storm game? And yeah. Chiefs, the, the Chiefs score a length of the field try, and then Dylan Leeds does this ridiculous off-the-ground flick pass. It was just amazing rugby. Absolutely filthy. That was amazing. Um, all right, look, uh, last question of the night, and we want to get back in the field. And, and last week, I think it was, we looked at the, who plays the number nine uh, role for the, the Wallabies this year. We're going to flip that upside down and talk about the number six role. So uh, number six, blindside flanker uh, candidates. Matt, who's your preference at this stage? Well, uh, well uh, geez, let's have a bit of a think through that one. Who was the Wallaby, who was the Wallaby number six at the end of last year? It seems like it was it's so long ago. Well, we who was playing six? Well, we had the pooper, but I'll get that for you. you the got... pooper, yeah. But um, but who was playing? Yeah, but who was playing? <laughs> who was playing eight? Wasn't that wasn't that? Uh, um, Pope yeah, the guy from the eight. Tamani. Tamani. Tamani that was, was yeah, yeah. yeah, that was him. Is, is he is he injured? Uh, um, mate, he's just come back this last couple of weeks. All oh, right, okay. Uh, or maybe he's just playing, yeah, for the Rebels, which yeah, you don't watch anymore. Um, yeah, look, that's that's a struggle. I was really looking forward to seeing um, Jack Dempsey get a bit more time, and I, I got that. It sounds like, mm. like a Waratah supporter thing, but only because he, I thought he was showing some real promise. Um, well, I tell you who has put his hand back up, even though he seems to have fallen out of favour. Um, you know, is obviously going to be Grinning God Rugby's own Scott Fardy on the weekend. He had an absolute pearler of a game captaining uh, captaining with, with the Brumbies. So, I mean, they're the, you know, I think they'd have to be... Um, I, know Brum- I know Dempsey's injured at the moment, um, but um, outside of Tamani, um, then, yeah, I would have, would have said Fardy just kind of put himself back in contention if you had to pick someone tomorrow. 
Yeah, he, he did come back and do it. I'll, I'll give you some names here, um, uh, Hugh, and, and get your opinion. So you wrote him off um, for his performance in the weekend, and it was his worst of the year, but he's been very good before that for the Reds. Scott Higginbotham Scott is a strong yeah. contender. Um, Scotty Farney, up, as you no, say. I'm going I'm to say, yeah, go on. I'll go line by line. Um, no, because oh, yeah. Checker doesn't have him, I reckon. We, we saw, we've seen it a couple of times before, and I just don't think Scotty Higgins is Checker's type of player. No, and so I'd be very surprised if, if, yeah. if he gets a, a start in a, in a big game. Well, that's interesting because the Wallabies did get together, didn't they? And, and we haven't had really good certainty as to who attended that and to, who didn't because the other one who's of interest is uh, Waratah Ned Hannigan. Yeah, young and, lad and who's got a... Yep. I think that's that's Checker's type of player. And that's why, look, Scotty Higgins, what, just to you mean a touch Waratah? on that. <laughs> one, one more Scotty Higgins thing. It was, I think that when the Reds scored a try, and I think it was uh, Aiden Toa's try, and the, the catalyst for it was, um, I think it was Alan Alatoa ran a hole, got through, made a break, but um, Scotty Higgins came out and went for the intercept. And I was watching it thinking, Michael yeah. Checker has just stormed out of the room or thrown a remote control <laughs> at, a, at, a, at a back row player missing, missing a tackle and creating a hole because he went out and went for an, went for an intercept. Um, but Ned Hannigan is, is this sort of country hard, you know, workhorse number six who I think has got even a little touch of the Rocky Elsoms about him. Um, and yep. he's very young, so I don't know if... We, you know, he's might be more of a next year prospect, but to be honest, this is sort of a year where we might think about that because oh. um, some easy test mid, mid season as we've touched on, and then you know we've we're, we're believe it or not only two years away from another World Cup. Um, so maybe the Scott Fardies and Scott Higginbotham's on the world might might find themselves on the outer as as we throw. You know, obviously Sean McMahon's going to have a big role to play, um, and whether that's on the blind side or not, um, I'm not sure. But um, Ned Hannigan is another name that I'd expect to see 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 up there. And I've got to say, the guy that's having a great season, and he's he's a seven, not a six. But I got a shout out from the Brumbies game. Chris Alcock is, oh, um, yeah, yeah, you know, he's the Tom Carter of Australian forwards. But he he just keeps going, keeps going, and 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 Michael Hooper is not a fetcher. And I just think with David Pocock, we might there might be a real. Um, market for, for, for those sort of fetching sevens, and he is probably our best at the moment. Yeah, best on baller. Um, look, I think Ross Hallett-Petty from the force needs consideration too. I think he's been excellent as well. Um, but as per last week, I'd split him up. Higgins plays in Brisbane, um, Hannigan plays in Sydney, and we'll give Fadi a game uh, in Melbourne for the, for the, uh, <laughs> the uh, test down there versus Fiji. So let's get those crowds up. All right, lads, uh, big show, lots and lots of on, um, so I appreciate your time with that. Um, obviously, a lot more to come, and I think we're still hopeful of a few more guests in the next couple of weeks, aren't we, Matt? We're going to try and get some more people on the show who can um, help talk us through some of the issues that's going on on and off the field. Got them lined up, mate. Excellent. Um, so, Matt and Hugh, thanks for your time again. Thanks, mate. Cheers, Reg. And to all our listeners uh, on the podcast or on the radio, thanks again for joining us, and we'll catch you next week.